Welcome to episode 176 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Welcome to 2020. If you're like most people, you've made a few resolutions about what you'd like to achieve this year. And if you're like 80% of people, you have lost your resolve by mid-February. There are a few reasons people can't seem to keep their commitments for even a full two months. Resolutions are often more aspirational than based on reality. Your brain knows that you've never even attempted this feat and immediately sows doubt in your ability to make it happen. Resolutions also put all the focus on the beginning of the year, it doesn't give it any solid goalposts to focus on throughout the year. Without a clear and strategic plan, we're left hoping our personal resolve and willpower will be enough. It's not. There's a tendency to give up the day after perfect, meaning the day after you failed to live up to whatever resolution or challenge you've taken on. If you've committed to getting 30 minutes of exercise a day, there's a good chance you've already missed a couple of days this year. Same is true if you said you'd write for 30 minutes a day to start your new book or call your mother every day. As well-intentioned as these resolutions are, they are probably not realistic, and we tend to be overly harsh on ourselves if we don't execute the plan perfectly. If you work on your book for five days in a row, miss one, and then your commitment wanes dramatically. That's actually the moment not to let perfect get in the way of getting done. This last point I learned reading Finish, Give Yourself the Gift of Done by John Acuff. It was the final book Heidi Weber and I presented on in last year's Magic of Quarterly Goal Setting Masterclass series. You can save yourself some time and catch the highlights of the book by watching the replay. Sign up for any of my free masterclass replays at robbysamuels.com forward slash masterclass. That'll also get you a 50-page workbook to help guide your quarterly goal setting throughout the year, not just January. Your challenge for this week Drop your resolutions now and try something different. Choose a word of the year instead. Think about your goals for this year. What word would help you stay on track all year? Your word could also remind you what you need or want to grow personally so you're ready for all of these successes. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's show. Today's guest says the pendulum has swung too far in the direction of superficial online communications. He spotted the real-time marketing revolution in its infancy and wrote five books about it, including The New Rules of Marketing and PR, with over 400,000 copies sold in English and also available in 29 languages from Albanian to Vietnamese. In 2002, his entrepreneurial journey began when his ideas were a little too radical for his bosses, so he started writing books, speaking at events, and advising emerging companies. He recognizes how tech-weary and pot-weary people are hungry for true human connection. He develops a winning strategy called phenocracy, helping organizations tap into the mindset that relationships with customers are more important than the products they sell to them. Please join me in welcoming David Meerman Scott. Hey, Robbie. It's so good to be here. Thanks so much. Awesome. David, thanks so much for joining us. You're actually really nearby, just outside of Boston. Um, it's it's like, I feel like we've been traveling a lot of the same circles, including yeah. the same room this past weekend. We were we in finally, exactly the same room this weekend. And here it, we are, a chance to talk face-to-face. Which so, is awesome. 
as you know, this is a uh, conversation really rooted in leadership because uh, no one succeeds in a vacuum. So, so tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? So I define leadership as a person who's able to see patterns that other people don't see and is able to then articulate them in, in such a way that inspires people to change. And the reason that I believe that's a defin- my definition of leadership is because in my own life, I've managed to see patterns that nobody else saw a handful of times. And each time I did, I was able to generate and quite literally thousands of people who followed me down that path. The first time this happened to me uh, was way back in approximately nine, uh, 2005. And in 2005, I was among the very first people on the, in the entire planet who recognized that online marketing was not about advertising. Because that's what everybody was doing, you know, 15 years ago. It was about advertising. I thought that online marketing is about content creation. That's because I worked for newspaper companies before I started my own business. I worked for Thomson Reuters and Knight Ritter and some other companies, Dow Jones. Um, And when I articulated this idea of content, and I wrote a book called The New Rules of Marketing and PR that you kindly mentioned in the introduction that sold a a whole bunch of copies, 400,000 copies in English so far, um, people were like, wow, this is amazing. I want to follow you. (laughs) And then I started speaking on the topic and people would come and then they would want to follow me on social media. So this is my definition. I I don't know if you've ever heard anything quite like it because I know you've asked a lot of people this particular question, but that would be my definition. Seeing patterns no one else sees articulating them in such a way that uh, people follow you to learn about that pattern. I I haven't heard that twist on this, but it makes so much sense, particularly given your lived history and your experience with this. But also there are people who see patterns and don't act on them. Right. And that's not a leader. You know, you you could be clairvoyant and have no one following you. (laughs) Um, So there's sort of a combination here. Of, of noticing and also taking action. Yeah, I think so. And I think, um, I think that people don't tend to follow those who are not original. Um, and I, I'm a huge live music geek. Oh my God, it's ridiculous. I've been to um, my most recent concert that I went to was last night, David Byrne, which was fabulous. My first concert was when I was um, 15 years old. Um, I saw Aerosmith at Madison Square Garden. And I, I keep a spreadsheet, 790 live shows in that period of time. Um, but in the live music world, um, if you're a cover band, you can have a small, you, it's possible to have a small degree of success, uh, but you're not really going to have a whole lot of people follow you. If you're an original act, you can have massive fandom because you're creating patterns in the universe that other people uh, are, 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 are willing to follow. So mm-hmm. um, I, a lot of the things that I do in my uh, world um, of speaking and writing and, and 
and social media stuff, um, I often take from the music world and see if I can twist it in such a way that um, that it, it, it is something else. And I think that's that's true. The the whole idea of of being a cover band in the yeah. world of in, in our world, because I know you're you're also a writer and a speaker, and and in our world, if you're a cover band and just talking about other people's ideas, you, you don't build a following. But if you're doing what you're doing right this moment, which is creating new stuff and being original, you develop fans as you've done, Robbie. You know, and then there's there's I wanted to say there's a little bit of a difference also in someone like a like a Daniel Pink, who does uh, it's not his own idea, but he's able to find these obscure notions, these studies, this data, this thing, and bring it to light, right? So it's still he's still doing some work and creating a following because of it that you know the the academic who first did the study is not doing. So you could have a great idea see a pattern and not have followers or you could be this person who says that's being overlooked i'm going to package it and and because i'm repackaging it create something new so right like there's a there's a way in which it doesn't have to be original in the like you were the only one in the world who ever saw this but there's still something you're doing that no one else thought to do Oh, absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. It's a nice, a nice actually addition to, to my little definition. Someone else who does that remarkably well is Malcolm Gladwell. Someone else who does that remarkably well is Michael Lewis. All three of those authors um, are identifying things that they find to be fascinating, the way their brain works. And then being able, as you, great word you chose, package, package them up in such a way that they almost become something new because of the way they're packaged. And then people want to follow that because they're the leader in, in sort of finding the breadcrumb trails that maybe other people didn't find. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm so curious because you talked a little bit about, you know, your passion for live music. You said, you know, in 2002, you left sort of the, the career you had and started pursuing this new world of entrepreneurism and and what that would mean but if you really rolled back the tape and you were thinking about like early childhood high school um what were you like back then was it clear that you were going to be someone who stepped out front did other people see that in you were you like the shy guy on the side were you organizing (laughs) your friends in the playground like what was life like back then for you david Uh, that's a really 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 interesting question so I found that I was um, not very successful doing um, what was expected. Um, I wasn't a good athlete. Um, I, you know, I what I if I ran for a student office, I would never win. Um, uh, I. I, I had okay grades. If I really enjoyed a subject, I would get it. I would get an A. But if it was just a regular subject, so I wasn't the one that was going to be successful by going through the traditional path. But I found that the things that I was really interested in, like like live music, which I started going to when I was fifteen. I don't play live music, but go to live music, and I became sort of the leader in essentially a lot of my high school and college years of the, the instigator, the one who knew the mu- new music before other people, the one who was buying the tickets to the show um, and in, inviting my friends to go with me. And it's like, wow, you know, there's like, you can, you can be, uh, I, didn't, I don't think I used this words, but you can be a success in many different things. And it doesn't have to be just on, um, on, on a sport, high school sports team or, or the high school student um, council 
um, or the high school, you know, getting great grades and going to the, the most famous colleges, you can be successful doing something different. And I, I, that, I, I really took that concept to heart in that I was always looking for something alternative to do. And um, I'll give you one example of that. Uh, so I started on Wall Street um, a company called Dean Witter on a bond trading desk. I was terrible at it. I hated it. It was just awful. It was totally the wrong thing for me to do. Uh, but I found that I really enjoyed the, the screens, the data that was behind it um, on the Dow Jones terminals and the Reuters terminals. And ended up that's where I ended up working at companies like Dow Jones and Reuters. Uh, and then um, there was an opportunity for someone in the company I was working for at the time to open an office in Tokyo. And I was 26 years old and I had no business volunteering for this job, but I did. I stuck my hand up. So I want to go to Japan. I want to open the Tokyo office. I don't know anyone there. It's like no business doing this. And they said, sure, go ahead. You're the right person to do this. I'm like, wow, that's cool. So I moved to Tokyo and here I am like, um, running an office for a Wall Street economic consulting company at the age of 26. And it was perfect because I was able to do something that was alternative and unique and interesting. I ended up living in Asia for 10 years, seven years in Tokyo, two years in Hong Kong, um, and acquired a Japanese wife along the way. And, and, uh, <laughs> and it was awesome. That's amazing. I, I feel like the thread through all this is that you early on didn't seek success through the traditional markers of success, but you were really more than okay with that because you discovered that if you followed what you were passionate about and people then were sort of drawn to that. So like in high school, you know, they were drawn to your enthusiasm, knowledge and, and passion around music and that you have a, you certainly have a willingness to like jump into something that you don't have your feet firmly yet rooted in. So going to Japan is a good example of that. Um, and boy, your life has certainly changed <laughs> having, oh, having yeah. uh, had that one, <laughs> that one decision. Um, but that it feels like it gave you a chance to, to be a different kind of leader, not under the scrutiny of your old office. Like you got to develop I think that's, things. I think that's absolutely right. It's a very, very um, perceptive of you to identify that because the, the head office was on Wall Street. And it was a 12-hour time difference. You know, I was sleeping during their business hours. <laughs> what a great way to have a, have a corporate job is to, is to do that. Um, and I, I worked at that company for a couple of years. I joined then a bigger company in Tokyo, another American company in Tokyo. Um, but I think having that opportunity to do that at a very young age, at 26, essentially running an office out of my home, um, gave me the, um, um, the kind of confidence that when I ended up starting my own business, you know, years later in 2002, I felt it didn't feel all that different. And it's like, so this is something I can do because I've already done something entrepreneurial and it wasn't as daunting. Um, That's really cool. There's a familiarity to the process. What then at, you know, obviously there's a moment where you decide to leave your day job. Like, what what defines that moment for you? Because I think a lot of people a, wonder that. Like, when do you know? It was a really, really, really simple thing. I got fired. <laughs> <laughs> so it was 2002. It was just um, 
actually is only less than six months after 9-11. It was early 2002. Yeah, recession. And um, there was a recession on. And the company I was working for was acquired by Thomson Reuters. And um, it was acquired in uh, late 2001. And then they gave me, you know, sort of six months to suck me dry. All my knowledge. I was a vice president of marketing at the time of the company I was working for. They sucked me dry and spat me out, which is very common in acquisition. Um, and I'm like, what the hell am I going to do now? But it. And, and I thought I wanted to be another corporate guy. I thought I wanted another corporate job. But but because I had that experience in Japan, because I felt like I was an entrepreneurial type of person, I said, you know what? I should just give it a shot. Um, and initially, I was doing consulting, um, which is hard work. So I quickly fi- tried to figure out how I could do something other than consulting. Um, and uh, a couple of years later, and I, and I wrote a couple of books, but a couple of years later, as we, as I mentioned earlier, we t- uh, the new rules of marketing and PR hit all the bestseller lists and got to incredibly well. And I was getting, um, and, and I know you're a speaker too, so you would appreciate this. I was getting more than one inquiry on average. Um, for my speaking um, directly to me every single day. Wow. Uh, and, um, and then I was booking 40 or 50 gigs at that time every year. Um, uh, and I kept raising my fee and they did keep saying yes. And I'm like, this is, this is crazy. What's going on here? Like I found something really remarkably awesome. And uh, I've managed to um, maintain not not quite 50 gigs a year, and um, I don't continually raise my fees anymore. But I've been able to maintain now for um, 13 years, and that's pretty awesome um, to be able to speak because I, I love it to be able to speak um, uh, to audiences all over the world. And I've spoken in 46 different countries all over the world. Um, and not have to have a job <laughs> yeah. since 2002. I feel like I, I tell my friends I'm I've been unemployed since 2002. Yeah. Um, but I, I've I've made an amazing career. I've done well financially, but I've been unemployed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So as you made that shift, then what was challenging? I mean, you had all these great ideas that you eventually got down into books, but back then self-publishing wasn't an option. So yeah. you had to find a way to get an agent. You had to get publish, you get to get noticed. I mean, I know really smart people that struggle to even get seen and, and noticed in that way. But, you know, as it established as a business, not just your passion on the side, what did you realize was not yours that somebody else needed to like help support you um, formally or informally so that you could focus on the part that truly was your, your thing? So I made a decision really early on that I did not want to have employees. I made a very, very conscious decision that it was important to me to be a one-person business. But I recognized I need a lot of help. So I have lots of virtual help. I have people, um, uh, agencies that I work with. I have a speaker manager who helps me. I have a literary agent who helps me. I have um, uh, people who help me with my videos and edit them for me. Um, I have people who help me to edit my menu. I write all my books, but to help me edit my manuscripts, even before I send them to my publisher. Um, I have uh, a couple of interns that work with me that help me out in various ways. So I have lots and lots and lots of help. But the main thing I decided 
And I'm really glad I made this decision as I didn't want any full-time employees because there were many opportunities for me to start an agency. You know, yes. I, I'm a, I write and speak about sales and marketing um, and business growth. And so people always say, wow, you, you have great ideas. Please execute them for me. So I'm sorry, I'm not... I'm not an agency. I'm not a consultant. I don't do that. Well, why not? I want to. I want you to do it for me. I'll, I'll pay you whatever you want me to pay you. And I'm like, you know, there's so many times where it's been tempting to say, okay, I'll take your money and I'll hire some people and I'll be out there um, being able to leverage myself. But, but I, I, I chose not to do that. And for me, that's the right choice. For other people, uh, having an organization around them, having employees. I was actually speaking with someone earlier today in a similar situation to me, you know, writes books, gives speeches, 75 employees. And like, uh, that's not for me. It's just not, not, I want to focus on creating content, um, leading people, um, thinking of new ideas and getting those ideas out into the marketplace. Do you have somebody who manages all of these ancillary support? Like, or is, are you really your, also your COO? I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm the CEO, the COO, and the person who is the, I would call it the executive producer dreaming all this stuff up. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have someone who does, who, who uh, you know, in other words, I'm, I'm juggling the balls myself. Yeah. It's so interesting because I, I spoke with Jennifer Brown about this and she's out of New York City and she um, branded her business, Jennifer Brown speaking and Jennifer Brown consulting. Um, but she essentially has a team around her. Her first major hire was a COO, mm. um, of an equal to her who actually was knew more about that side of the logistics and, 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 you know, internal focus. Um, she rarely does any consulting. It has to be like a particular type of client at a particular type of fee. And she spends all of her time speaking and writing. <laughs> so yeah. essentially the thing that you're describing um, but I think you're right. Like there's a certain amount of psychic energy if you know you've got, well, this person you were talking to had 75 employees um, that has to weigh on you as you're making decisions that you have certain, you wanted to not, not only did you not want to be employed, you also didn't want to be an employer. It sounds Correct. Like. That's exactly right. I wanted to see if I could maintain um, a lifestyle for my family that um, that was comfortable and that we could enjoy the things that we want to do. You know, we love to go to the theater. We love to go out to eat. We love to travel. We, we want to be comfortable and not worry about money. Um, but, it, but do it. So it was, it was just me and I've been able to maintain that. I've been able to do that. So I'm really, really happy that, um, I mean, who knows what would have happened if I decided to have employees, who knows, maybe that would have worked out. I don't know, but this is working for me now and this is what I want to maintain. Yeah, a certain amount of flexibility in the way you did this. So, so as you uh, move through the world, you meet uh, hundreds of people um, who who are seeking you because of the work that you're doing, uh, the leadership that you're showing. You're also part of amazing networks. You and I are part of one of those. Yeah, networks, more than one probably. Um, I'm curious as you think about that network, not just like the closest circle, but like the second and third layers out. Do you have any habits or, or philosophies? practices around nurturing and sustaining connection with that sort of larger uh, community that you have? So one of the things that I do that um, it's very, very important to me is I, um, I respond to people who reach out to me. Um, 
as long as it's not a robot or um, or um, an email that's sent to multiple people at one time. If it's something personal, I respond to everything. And that's something that, that can take time. Um, for example, I speak at all of Tony Robbins' business mastery events around the world. And, um, and you know, the last Tony Robbins business mastery was in Las Vegas in August. And there were 2,200 people in the room and I had an hour and a half on stage and it's a remarkable community of people that, that go to Tony Robbins events and they're so excited to soak up information. And I'm just honored that um, I'm part of that um, community, part of that ecosystem. And I'm given the gift of having an hour and a half on the stage. And I put my Twitter ID on every single one of my slides um, I mention um, my my um, URL if people and I say if you know want to reach out to me I'm I'm available and I'll get literally hundreds of people who will reach out through one of the social networks connect with me on LinkedIn send me a tweet um, uh, send me an email and um, I answer every single one and I try to answer every single one at the moment it comes in. So I get off the stage, I spend three hours answering things, you know, wow. it, and it's, and it's, that's really, really important to me. And, um, and some of those people turn into my friends and some of those people turn into business opportunities and some of those people, um, but, but, but the vast majority of them, um, I'm, I'm hopeful that they learn, they, they, that I helped them, that they learned something by, being able to hear me for an hour and a half and maybe if they buy one of my books that they learn a little bit more, but I don't really have any contact after that. But I just feel like if somebody takes the time to an hour and a half out of their life to listen to you and then another five minutes out of their life to write an email or two, two minutes out of their life to compose a tweet, that you need to respond to them. And there's a lot of people, Robbie, who are in our situation, who, who are on stages who don't do that. Um, they either ignore it or they, you know, bang back some kind of form letter or they, you know, they have an assistant do it or they're not really, um, they're not really active on social networks in a true social way. And I think that's a mistake. Um, and for me, it's been an incredibly powerful thing to, um, uh, to respond to the gift of somebody paying attention to what I have to say. Well, I think it reminds me of a couple of things. One is you're constantly hearing from your audience, which is important. So you stay relevant. You can't, you can't create content in a vacuum. So you hear what's resonating or what you didn't cover. Like I, whenever I have a chance to mingle with people after, I always say like, what, what resonated, what stuck out and what did I not? Like, what was the question that's lingering? I always want to know those things. And I actually just did a webinar like an hour ago. And I happened to overhear, because I, when I called the person, there was people still talking about the webinar in the nice. background. Awesome. awesome. <laughs> so I really, truly got to hear like what, they, what was like sticking out for them. And I love that moment. And then you got me thinking about this idea of reaching out to people when they're on stage. Um, I actually... Uh, make it a habit. And I, I go to um, an annual National Speaker Association yes. you know, conference and um, influence. And when I launched my podcast, it was a Tuesday. That Friday, I went to my second ever influence. And I walked in with like, a, okay, I'm going to find some people to be a guest in my show. 
Then I realized everyone's a speaker. They'll all be a guest in my show. I got to be a little pickier than that. So I thought I'm going to reach out to people who are main stage speakers uh-huh. uh, and or million dollar business owners and yeah. or had been in the national past, past national present. And I found 12 of those people. And half of them I found because I messaged people through LinkedIn or Twitter while they were on stage. Nice. And so Scott nice. and I, Scott Stratton and I met because of his time on stage and me subsequently, you know, following around until I figured out who on his team I should send my message to. <laughs> um, uh, Josh Picard, who's also an amazing social researcher, I met that way. Um, he said, let's just meet in the hallway. <laughs> nice. And, you know, these little moments. Um, but I also want to say that, you know, sometimes it's just turning next to you. Like I met a million dollar business owner by saying hello to him while online at Starbucks. <laughs> right. And then he invited right. me to have breakfast with him. And I offered him some value. Not who, I didn't know anything about him and his like financial background, but I had a technical answer for him about how he could do something. Right. And he was like, oh my gosh, will you get on my, hop on a call with my team and explain that? And that's how I learned more about his business <laughs> and the fact that he was very good at his business. So a little bit of what you're saying is in the moment, take, Take the take the moment to acknowledge people, you know they're appreciating you, appreciate them back, and that yeah. has been a way for you to continue to serve a community that you've been developing around you. I my question though around um, intentionality is there because you travel a ton. Do you ever use the fact that you're in another state as a as a reason to pull people together or do one on one meetings, or are you more of like a a recluse when you're traveling. I know some people have to find the energy for all of this. Kind of, kind of neither. Um, I do occasionally um, push something out on social and say, hey, I'm going to be somewhere. Does anyone want to get together? Uh, occasionally. Um, many times if I'm going to a city, I have a friend there and I'll reach out and say, hey, do you want to grab a coffee or something? And um, and I, when I say a friend, I mean just someone I've met like you, you know, someone who I've just met through this wheel, this world that we live in. Um, and, and, uh, and, but, but at the same time, I do need some downtime. <laughs> um, so, you know, typically when I speak at a conference and I'm sure it's the same for you, you know, there's a thousand people at the conference. And when I walk in the room, not that many people, maybe a few people have read one of my books, but not that many people know me. And then I'm on the stage and then everyone knows me. And, um, I love when people come up and say, hey, hello, you know, I really enjoyed your speech. Hey, can we trade business cards? Or, um, you know, can, would you mind um, joining me for lunch? Whatever it is. And I'll try to say yes as much as I Certainly, if it's easy, I always say yes. Um, but, you know, at a certain point, I run away. And, and when I mean, when I say I run away, I don't mean that it's in a negative sense. But, you know, if you're on for 12 hours and you're, you're the one that everyone knows because you were on the stage for 12 hours, um, um, I feel like the, I reach a point where I need to say, I just need to go in my room, drink a glass of wine, um, read a magazine and go to sleep. <laughs> yeah. And, and, that, and, I, and I do that. Um, and so it's a combination, I think, of those several different things. But, well, and even the meeting up with a friend for coffee is a way to continue to nurture that part of your network. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly right. That's right. exactly right. That's exactly right. right. I always find it interesting with speakers uh, that sort of coincidence of, wait, you're going to be in Ohio also? Which part? You know, and then you're like, find you out you're in the same like four square miles of some little part 
that you didn't know. Right, right, <laughs> you, you right. Thought you wouldn't know anyone there and suddenly you discover that actually there is someone else there. It's, it's social media has actually helped me with that. Like when me I'm too. traveling somewhere, you, sometimes your phone bings and says, oh, you have a friend nearby. <laughs> and yeah. you're like, I do? I know, right? <laughs> Who? Who's that? Yeah. Oh, cool. So it can awesome. layering on to our, like that augmented reality part of, of so social can be pretty cool. So as we're kind of winding down here, so one of my favorite questions as we think about everything you've accomplished and you've written so many books, um, you know, you're, you're doing 450 talks a year. Um, you, you seem very driven and passionate about the work that you do. So if we we're meeting a year from now, and I'm, I'm thrilled to know that we're going to not have to wait a year to do that. <laughs> but if, we're, if we're connecting a year from now and we are reflecting on all of your successes what are we going to be toasting? Like, what are the things that you're most looking forward to in the year ahead? So um, it, it, I wrote this book with my daughter, Reiko, um, called Fanocracy, um, Turn Fans into Customers and Customers into Fans. Um, and coincidentally, it's coming out today, <laughs> the, the day that this, this, is, this is going out. Um, the day that this podcast is being released, which is amazing. And so when I meet you a year from now, um, we are going to toast um, that you are a big help to me to get the word out about this new book. And, um, you know, my daughter is now 26. When we first started researching how people become fans of something, she was only 21. And it came about because I mentioned, I said to her, is this really freaking weird that I've been to 75 Grateful Dead concerts and, and, and you know, 790, 780 concerts so far, whatever the number was at that point. And she says, I know that it's really weird that that I um, love Harry Potter so much that I wrote a 90,000 word alternative ending to the Harry Potter series where Draco Malfoy is a spy for the Order of the Phoenix. And then I published that onto a fan fiction site for everybody to see. And it's gotten thousands of downloads and, and hundreds of comments. You know, she's like, and, and, and at first we were like, we're really weird that we have these hobbies. And then we realized, no, everybody has the thing, has things they're passionate about. Every single human has things that they're passionate about. And for many of us, the people who share those passions, like my, my case, my friends who share live music, or in my daughter's case, her friends who share Harry Potter and, and Comic-Con fandom, those are, are, are among our, our best friends. And we realize that we can tap that fandom as companies. And so um, we wrote this book together and, and, you know, to, to watch one's daughter grow up from a tiny little squealing infant to uh, a toddler, to an elementary school student, to, you know, a bratty teenager, to going off to college. And now um, she, she goes to Boston University. She's a um, fourth, fourth year medical school student. She'll graduate in a couple of months and be a doctor. Um, and we wrote this book together. Um, obviously different generations, obviously different genders. Um, she's mixed race. My wife's Japanese, as I mentioned earlier. And, um, and she has different fandoms than me. And she comes at it from a neuroscience perspective. Um, um, and we're going to, you and I are going to celebrate that this book is out in the marketplace and that once again, I've figured out patterns in the universe that are interesting to people such that they want to follow me, as I've done a number of times in my life, um, which we talked about at the opening. And this particular pattern is that people are looking for true human connection. 
You know, the, the, the idea of superficial online communications, I think, is played out. And there's so many people who are doubling down with social media. And you don't even know if the person you're communicating with is a robot or not. But, um, but all of a sudden, this idea of true human connection around something you're a fan of and uh, something, this is something companies can tap. Uh, it just gives me so much excitement and to have written it with my daughter is just, has been a remarkable experience. In fact, we'll bring her along when we share that cha- that glass of champagne that we're going to be toasting a year from now. Unbelievable. I, especially since I have two little ones under the age of four, so I'm trying to fast forward in my head 20 years from now. It's really when they're hard. helping me write a book. <laughs> it's really, no, it's really hard. Because I remember when my daughter was four. It's really, really hard to imagine. Yeah. I mean, you can see the, you can kind of see the person that they're becoming at age four. Um, you know, they have their own mind and they can speak in sentences and they can make sense. They can surprise you. They can I, they can notice something you never noticed before and surprise you. with. There's all sorts of cool things a four-year-old can do. But it's so hard to imagine what they're going to be like. My daughter's now 26 at age 26. And I just love the fact that I've been able to share this with her. You know, that we, for five years, we've been working on this project. We researched it for about three years. We wrote it for about a year and a half and now we're sort of in you know promotion mode getting it out into the universe and and we actually did a presentation together which was fabulous at HubSpot's inbound conference so uh, as a as a professional speaker to have the ability to do a talk with your daughter on stage about the book you wrote is kind of amazing yeah oh, what a great proud dad moment <laughs> yeah. i have to say and um her fandom makes me think of the Harry Potter alliance. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, and she um, she's very familiar with that alliance. Yeah, a we friend actually, of mine started this, and it's oh it's, really? Uh, oh, that's yeah. so cool. We actually wrote about it in the book briefly because um, she's really into it. Yeah, uh, their 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 tagline is "We're changing the world by making activism accessible to the power of story." Yes. So they they take the millions of fans of that story. And then they get them out there working for equality and human rights and right. No, it's really great. We also we also interviewed um, the head of the founder and head of MuggleNet, which is the largest Harry Potter uh, fan site which he started, I think he was 14 years old when he started it. And it became um, the true mouthpiece for Harry Potter fans such that J.K. Rowling would would contact him and they actually met in Scotland at her castle when she had something to share with the fans that she would sometimes just go through him, through MuggleNet, <laughs> as, a way, as a way of getting the word out there, which is kind of remarkable. But um, he's obviously now older. I think he's just under age 30 um, and has done some remarkable things things with his life. But the idea of fandom as a prescription for business is just fascinating to me. It really is. Well, I can't wait to see not only the success of the book, but how your idea ripples and impacts business and the culture of business as we all look for a new way to relate to each other. I love that you're centering humans back into the conversation. Yeah, humans so and the thing that we love, the things that we love. We all have things that we love um, and companies companies can tap that, you know, and it's like, I think the world, you know, the whole world is ready, I believe, for 
a kinder, gentler approach. Um, you know, if you, you know, you can think of anything, the world of politics, for example, especially American politics is so polarizing and so mean and so nasty. And you're either on team A or team B. And, um, it, and it's just, I, I just hope we can change that. And I, and I hope that we can change the way companies do business because, um, you know, the approach where you, you, you just try to exploit them, you, you try to take their money and not give anything in return. You know, I, I, I think that's changing. And I think that we're going to be in a world where the winners are going to be the companies that can develop the best relationships with people. That's excellent. Well, David, how can people find you and follow your work? Um, so on most of the socials, Twitter, Instagram, and whatnot, I am DM Scott, D-M-S-C-O-T-T. Um, the fanocracy.com is a great place to learn more about this idea of fandom and how to grow fans for your business. I've got tons of free content on there. Learn more about the book. Um, and um, I use my middle name professionally. I'm David Meerman Scott. David, my first name, Meerman, my middle name, Scott, my last name. Not because I'm weirdly pretentious, although I've been accused of that, but more so because there are a whole bunch of David Scotts in the world. And when I first started my business, if you had Googled David Scott, you would have gotten um, uh, the commander of Apollo 15 who walked on the surface of the moon. You would have gotten a member of Congress from Georgia. You would have gotten the number one Ironman triathlon champion. So I decided to use my middle name. So if you just Google David Meerman Scott, all things uh, me will pop up. Well, we will have all those links in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. David Meerman Scott, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Robbie. I really appreciate you um, having me on and, and, and pushing this out on the day that my book comes out. I hope you enjoyed that interview with David. Such a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share it resonate with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 176. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources of today's show, as well as over 175 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. Is 2020 your year for business growth? I've got room in my schedule for one or possibly two more private coaching clients. Email me at Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com to start or continue a conversation about working together. These long-term engagements give you the support and guidance you need to move to the next level without wasting any time trying to figure everything out yourself. If you enjoyed this episode with David, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. I look forward to connecting again next week when I'm interviewing another talent professional about their untold stories of leadership and networking. We'll explore their career challenges, work-life balance, and how they built a strong professional network on the way to becoming a successful leader. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E.
This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.